if you have your Bibles, would you find 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? While Jeremy's on vacation this week and next week, we'll be looking at the next portion of 1 Thessalonians 4. I was proud this morning when several of you mentioned a memory of 1 Thessalonians. I've been going through this book for several years. It will probably be several more years before we finish on my sporadic schedule, but that's more than you need to know. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll read verses 3 through 8 this morning as we think about a pursuit of holiness. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Beginning in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, you may be thinking already, I understand the topic of this morning's sermon, and I, along with many of you, am anticipating questions from my children when I get home. Know that you are not alone in that endeavor, but this is a very weighty and important topic for God's church, and I'd ask you as we begin, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, you could probably answer that question several different ways, but can we not say that being a Christian means being different? And when I say different, I don't mean strange or weird, though that may be the accusation in many forums. When we say that Christians are different, hopefully that makes sense to you. We think differently. We think about this world differently. We think about our lives differently. We think about our sin differently than the people around us in this world. We think about our goals and what are marks of success differently than the world around us. We speak differently. We aim to bless and not to curse. We abstain from crude joking and obscene things. We hold back lies from coming out of our mouths because we are different. Church, we live differently. Our schedules are filled with things that are different than the world around us. We spend most of our time in one single book Out of all the books on our shelves, some of you have more books than others, but the Bible is the most important one. And of all the days of the week, the most leisurely morning out of seven, we decide to come together and spend it together. Not in pursuit of some leisurely activity, but we come together to sing and pray and go back to school as it was to to learn about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from the scriptures. We are not like the world around us. And for good reason. But the difference in us is not simply the way that we live, the things that we do. Our difference goes to the very core of who we are. We are different. You know, it hasn't always been that way, right? It used to be that we were like everyone else. We thought we had control of our lives. We thought we lived the right way and did the right things. We 
we're just fine with making ourselves happy. And then one day, the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, helps us to understand the truth, and we realize things really aren't very fine. We realize, I actually am a sinful person. I think about myself far too much. I am selfish. I am rude. I am inconsiderate towards the people around me. But by the grace of God, he has shown us the truth about ourselves and about our hearts. And he has displayed to us the worthiness of Christ who who came to this earth and died on the cross for the very sins that you and I have committed. And Jesus bore the full weight of God's wrath, God's punishment for our sin. He died in our place. And praise the Lord, when you heard that truth of the gospel, at some point you repented of your sin. You changed your mind about your own life. You changed your mind about the work that God has done. In fact, God has changed your mind about the truth. That makes you different. See, God has saved each of us out of sin. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to purchase us from sin so we no longer face this penalty for sin but we have the expectation of inheritance as sons of God but God has not saved us just for this hope of an inheritance to come he has saved us also for his daily use do you recognize that every day your life is for the purpose of God you're no longer living for yourself You are a different person who has been set apart for the will of God. This, church, is what the Bible means when it says that we are holy. Did you know that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are called a saint? You are a holy one of God. God has set you apart from sin and this world and set you apart for himself. He has saved you from the penalty of sin but he's also saving you from the power of sin. You have this hope in Christ, and so you live this life that is set apart for God. See, we used to serve sin because wrapped up in every fabric of our being was this sinful, fleshly desire. But now God has drawn us out of that pattern of sin, and we live to serve God. And if you face a struggle in this life, it is the struggle of trying to figure out how can I serve God better and better, more and more every day. Because this conflict still reigns, right? We know the truth. We know what God has done for us and this call that God has put on our life. And yet we still face this struggle, this draw back into sin. Sin is powerful. The flesh is compelling. And the spirit wages war with our flesh. We have this struggle. But the axiom is true. God loves you just the way that you are. But he does not leave you the way that you are. As we look in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to begin to trace this idea that Paul starts up in chapter 4 and verse 1. How you ought to walk and to please God. So in verse 3, he uses another word to speak of the same thing. It's the word sanctification. That's a really big word. We could say that sanctification is learning how to please God more and more. 
It is growing in holiness, growing in a lifestyle of pleasing God. So we have two big words there, holiness and sanctification. If you want to sound real fancy, throw those words around some. Paul uses simpler words. He wants us to know how we ought to walk and to please God and to do so more and more. That is simply the Christian life, growing in holiness, figuring out how to walk and to please God and to do it more and more from one day to the next. The question is, what does that look like? One of my favorite writers, J.C. Ryle, says that genuine sanctification or this growing in holiness, pleasing God, it's not found in religious talk. It's not found in religious feelings. It's not found in religious practices. It's not even found in secluding yourself from the world. And it's not found in simply sometimes doing the right things. Genuine sanctification is a habit of living in obedience to God's way of life. If we're going to please God, we need to make a habit of following God's principles for life. Now that sounds really hard. It is hard, but the good news is by the time we get to the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, if you look in chapter 5 and verse 23, he gives us some helpful words. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Paul prays that God would be the one to do this work in his people. Look in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Not only is salvation impossible on your own, but sanctification is also impossible on your own. It requires the work of God in you. But Paul is confident that if you are in Christ, God will complete this work in you. There is a daily struggle, but God is working it out, and you can trust in his power to finally set you apart completely from sin. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you've been set apart for the Lord when Christ redeemed you. Your life is set apart for him in your daily living. And without a doubt, one day you will be finally set apart from the presence of sin when Christ returns to bring you into the presence of God. If that is not a hopeful thought, let's talk some more. But sadly, the world aims to convince Christians that it's really not okay to be different. It's not okay to be holy. That's understandable. The world doesn't understand what we're living for. It doesn't understand this truth that we cling to. But the world wants to convince us that it's really okay, it's really a better plan for us to all be like everybody else. Do you realize that's really the pattern of worldliness? People in the world say things like, just be yourself, be you, as if you can be different. But worldliness just wants you to be like everybody else in the world. It's a trick. Brothers and sisters, it is not okay for Christians to give in to this persuasion of the world. A Christian is someone whom God has made holy, has made different. It is okay it is right to not fit in with the world. God demands that Christians be holy. He empowers Christians to be holy. And he actually makes us holy. So we are different for a purpose. 
And so I might ask you this morning, why is it that so many people who call themselves Christians live and act no differently than the world around them? Specifically with our verses this morning from 1 Thessalonians 4, I could make that question more specific. Why, why is it that so many Christians have taken the world's view of sexuality when God's word is very clear? A muddled view of sexual holiness has caused great weakness in the church today. And right alongside that truth is the truth that applies to each of us individually, that a lack of conviction here has caused the ruin of many individual Christians. And will prove to do so for any of us who don't stand fast. Now that warning is no different than it was for the people in first century Thessalonica. You know, sometimes we like to think that today's world is just, it's just so much worse than it was back then. Maybe it's a form of pride, like we, we, want to, we want it to be worse that we live here and now. Uh, but, but in the case of Thessalonica, who faced both a Greek and a Roman culture almost at the same time, sexual immorality was just as rampant and just as ruinous as it is today. So the people back then weren't a lot different than they are these days. So when we hear Paul's words to the church here, we can receive them and understand that the people he spoke to faced a lot of the same things that we face today. For instance, Greek philosophy had determined, and listen to how, how pertinent this sounds in today's world, as long as you do these things in private and it doesn't harm anyone, then it's permissible. That's from BC time. As long as you don't steal another man's wife, you can do whatever you want. And those are just the natural conclusions. Religion made matters even worse in Paul's day, not better. The gods of pagan religion were sponsors of some of the worst forms of wickedness. I won't even read to you the things that I read this week. It would make you sick. And the people in the church at Thessalonica probably came out of that pattern of life. They had been part of the pagan religion of the day. And so they would, would face these temptations from one day to the next, because that was their normal style of life. And now God is telling them something drastically different because Christians are different kinds of people. So Paul is urging them, encouraging them that this new pattern of life is the one to stick with. Church sin is nothing new. And sexual immorality especially is nothing new. What we see today is just the godless human heart working itself out in sin to the farthest degree. But it's happened before, and it's going to continue to happen all the way until Christ returns. But don't worry, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and neither will the sexual revolution. When you say things in our culture today like sexual sin, the response is like, that's an oxymoron. Those two words just don't seem to go together. And whereas we could spend a lot of time um, calling the world to repent of this sort of sin, our passage this morning is not for the world, it's for the church. This is a call for the church to live like we are God's treasured possession. It's a reminder that sexual immorality is a description of people outside the church who live in the world. 
And this is an exhortation for us to refuse that sort of a lifestyle so that we live a holy life set apart for the Lord. Because the gospel gives us hope that even if this was at one time the pattern of your life, if you have come to Christ, then you have been set free from this bondage to sin. You are a new person. You are not described any longer the way the world is described. When Paul spoke to the church at Corinth, he gave them these encouraging words. And he, he was rebuking them for the sins of sexual immorality and adultery and homosexuality. And he says, and such were some of you. That's a wonderful verse. Let me say that again. And such were some of you with the implication that you're not that way anymore because of the work that has been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, even this sin of sexual immorality is one that is nullified, removed, overcome by the blood of Christ. And the Bible is clear. The verses I just read point out precisely that sexual immorality does not fit with a lifestyle of aiming to please God. In fact, sexual immorality runs in the opposite direction of holiness. If we strip down this passage to its bare bones, we could see that this kind of immorality is not sanctification. It's not self-control. It is transgression and wrongdoing. It is a cause for God's vengeance. It is impurity and disobedience to God. It is in opposition to the Holy Spirit. That is not the condition we want to live in. Sexual immorality reverts back to a life of sin. It does not advance the Christian walk. It does not please God. And maybe more than any other sin, sexual immorality is a contradiction of the Christian life. That's the conclusion of these six short verses. So if your aim is to walk and to please God this morning, then understand there's no place for sexual immorality in the Christian life. And I have four reasons that Paul gives to us why that is true. Sexual immorality has no place in the Christian life, first, because of God's plan. So if you look in verse 3, he says, this is the will of God. What is it that God wills? What is God planning for his people? And he follows that statement with four different phrases. First, your sanctification. Second, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Number three, that you, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And then in verse six, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So here are four different uh, instructions, um, four different gateways into this same courtyard of the will of God. If you want to aim for the will of God, then, then you can look at each of these as almost synonymous. If you want to be sanctified, then you must abstain from sexual immorality. If you want to abstain from sexual immorality, then know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. And, and doing that will also serve to, to not transgress and wrong a brother. So Paul speaks about this big umbrella of sanctification, and then he zeroes in on this one application of sexual immorality. First he says, abstain. It's pretty straightforward. Keep away from immorality. It's not something to incrementally wipe out, something to just take stair steps away from. You're going to work on it as you go. Paul says abstain from sexual immorality. Cut it off. Cut it out. In Colossians 3, he says put it to death. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee from it. In Ephesians 5, don't even let this be named among you as is proper among the saints. The idea is pretty clear. Get away from sexual immorality and get sexual immorality away from you. So think back to Joseph in Potiphar's house being tempted by Potiphar's wife. He was willing to even leave some of his clothing behind so that he could run away from this temptation. I haven't answered the question yet, but it's appropriate. What exactly is sexual immorality? If we get this answer wrong, then we have a way out for the world. That's how you get around difficult instructions, right? You just change the definition of your words. Can I tell you that safe and consensual are not the biblical qualifiers of the term. Reputable scholars would agree that this phrase, sexual immorality, applies to any sort of intimate relationship outside the bounds of the marriage between a man and a woman. God's design for physical intimacy is restricted to this union of marriage between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that that boundary is forbidden. So think about Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for, and here's the contrast, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So Paul tells us that the will of God is to abstain from sexual immorality, but also to know how to control themselves. He's telling the church, literally the the verse says, if you have footnotes in your Bible, it might say this, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel. The idea here is to figure out how to keep your own body under control, how to, how to contain yourself. Know what it takes to contain yourself, your body. When it comes to temptation, all temptation really, the responsibility of Christians is to, first of all, know yourself. Know what are your weaknesses. Know what things draw you away from the Lord. What in your past is going to trigger you to to fall into this sin again and then take that knowledge and use whatever means necessary to control yourself, to aim for holiness and honor. This is a great amount of self-control that the Christian life requires. Essentially, Paul is saying, church, tell your body what to do. Don't let your body tell you what to do. This is a big transition in life. Paul says, That's what the Gentiles do. They who don't know God, they live in the passion of lust. This is both active and passive. They're just living life, and whatever temptations come along, they they respond to it. It seems to be satisfying, so let's do it. Or there's such strong lust within their hearts, they actually know this is what it will take to satisfy me, so they aim for it. But that is not the way that God's people live. We know what things are right and what things are wrong, and we aim to make it happen, the right that is. We know how to control ourselves to aim for what God's will is. That doesn't make it easy. In no sense am I saying that this task is an easy one, but we are different people because God has changed us. So Paul is saying, don't act like the people who don't know God Figure out how to master your own body. He doesn't tell us that knowing God automatically means we master our body, but he is giving us this comparison. If you are controlled by what your body wants to do, then you act more like those who don't know God than you are acting like one who does know God. 
your Bible might also have another footnote there that sounds confusing. And so I want to address it. Uh, Mine tells me that another way to read this verse is that you might want to, uh, how to take a wife for himself. So there's a difference there. Not how to control his own body, but how to take a wife for himself. Now that doesn't sound the same. So you wonder, which way is it, right? Um, Apparently, someone ages ago translated this verse using the same words. There's There's no... corruption in the text. They just use the same words to to translate a different word in English. This is really an English problem. (laughs) Uh, But they agreed that the the thought was, if you can figure out how to attract a wife, then that will help you to prevent sexual immorality in your life. Now, that may or may not be a good idea. They compared other verses in the Bible, and I could list all those for you, but I think that probably I've already exasperated the amount of attention that many of you want to know about all this. Suffice it to say that probably you have a more contemporary English version that says, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And I'm no translation expert, but when you compare all the the evidence, that seems to me to be the best translation. So you can take stock in the fact that your Bible is authentic and well-written. Don't see that as a, a reason to doubt your Bible. Know that there's just a process of understanding what the Bible says. But God is instructing the church through Paul to know how to master their own bodies in self-control, not let their body master them. See, you used to be a mess in sin, and you didn't know it. Now, after Christ has come into your life, you're not quite as much of a mess in sin. I, as well, still have sin to deal with. It's just now, the hard thing is, now we know it. We have come to a knowledge of the truth. God has opened our eyes to our sin and how it's not right before God. And as you grow in your knowledge of God, you also grow in your understanding of yourself. And the fight for holiness in the Christian life lies in this conflict between knowing the right thing, knowing the thing that pleases God, and that leftover sinful flesh that wants to draw you away back into the old way of life. So Paul's application here might be to to grow in your understanding of truth, to fill up your mind with a knowledge of truth, not so that you become a genius in theological terms that you can just go spout off good information to other people, but so that you know yourself better and you know the things that will help you to control your body. Grow in your understanding of God and his manner of salvation and sanctification. Grow in your knowledge of, of your own heart and its fleshly desires and motivations. That means you're going to spend more time reading God's word. That means you're going to spend more time thinking about your own soul. Not to be introspective, to think about yourself too much, but so that you might do what Paul says here, know how to control your own body. The last part of God's plan for his people is that they also not transgress and wrong a brother in this matter. And that is in this matter of sexual sin. It may be that two people in a church who call themselves Christians can even get caught up in this sort of sin. May it never be, but if it, if it is, it's not simply a matter of a, a mutually agreed upon satisfaction. We can do very well to justify just about anything we want to justify, but Paul uses some very clear words about what this kind of a sin is. It is a transgression 
That is a frequent word in the Bible that is serious in reference to sin. It is a wrong done to a fellow Christian. So it's like trespassing, crossing the line into a place that you have no territory going into and taking advantage of the Christian who's over there. Sexual immorality in the church isn't a sanctified error that we just sweep under the rug. It is the use of another person to fulfill one's own ungodly desires. This was the sin of David with Bathsheba. Do you remember that story? Nathan rebuked David and came to him and said, you are the man who stole that precious lamb from the poor man and used it for yourself. The Lord eventually rebuked David also. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. And if all that had been too little for you, I would add to you as much more. Anyone who would practice this kind of immorality with another believer in the church, maybe you've forgotten the grander promises of God. That the fellowship of God's people is far greater than fleshly satisfaction. That God's eternal promises in the heavenly places far outweigh any, any type of fleshly satisfaction that only happens for a moment. This is the same error as Esau. You remember Esau? He was so hungry. He just needed a bowl of soup to satisfy his belly. He was so hungry, he just, he was willing to give up whatever it took to get this bowl of soup, so he sold his birthright. He sold the covenant blessings of God for a bowl of soup. Could any moment of fleshly satisfaction be worth giving up the covenant blessings of God? May it never be. We, as God's people, are called to give of ourselves, to serve one another in genuine love, not to demand and take from other people in the church. Sexual immorality turns the whole one another fellowship upside down on its head. It is so serious that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies, not at all meaning those who are of the world, for that would mean you'd have to go out of the world. No, I wrote that you should not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler to not even eat with such a one. A few verses later, purge that evil person from among you. Paul says, put that kind of a person out of the fellowship because that sin is a contradiction of the name of Christian. And if it's present in the church, taking advantage of the fellowship, it is a corruption of God's community. It will destroy the fellowship. Well, sexual immorality is sin, but it's not, first of all, a sin against your own body, though it is that from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's not, first of all, a sin against another person, though it is also that. This is a sin, first of all, against God. So there's no place in the Christian life for sexual immorality because, number two, of God's vengeance. So in verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. Another way to think about holiness is, is a way to describe nearness to God. So the, the holier a person is, 
the closer to God he is, and vice versa. The, the closer one is to God, the holier that person is. But it also works the other way. The, the more distant a person is from God, the less holy that person is. So this is where we get this idea. To be in the presence of God, to be acceptable in God's presence, you must be holy. Now we know that requires the perfect holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can never stand before God on our own in our own righteousness. It just won't work. But anyone who would live in this life aiming not for holiness, but to destroy even their own holiness, has only this expectation of God relating to him as an avenger. This is why Hebrews tells us, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Otherwise, God will act as an avenger in all these things. And I I see that as referring to all of those portions of God's will in verses 3 through 6. And Paul may be alluding to natural consequences for sin. So when it comes to sexual immorality, there are many natural consequences. You could probably list a long list, like guilt, despair, disease, maybe even death. There's destruction of reputation that could come along with that sin. For Christian leaders, there's disqualification from ministry. For members of churches, there's separation from the church. Paul may be saying, if you continue in this pattern of sin, if you persist in it, eventually something undesirable is going to happen. But I think Paul is is looking more in in a big picture kind of way. Not that God would just providentially allow something to happen, but that God is an active avenger over this sort of sin. Think with me back to stories in the Old Testament. Could you find any common uh, qualities of the sort of people that God acts as an avenger against? When God gets vengeance on people, are there any common characteristics of those people? I could find some similarities even with this passage. God exercises vengeance on people who persist in false worship, which is often demonstrated through sexual immorality. God exercises vengeance on those who refuse to know God. They have seen his revelation. They have seen his instruction. They should give in and and understand what his his revealed uh, instruction is, and yet they persist in refusing to know God. God also exercises vengeance on those who are constantly at odds with his people. So think about all the nations who attacked Israel. God was fighting for his people Israel, getting vengeance on those who would attack them. But God is still a God of vengeance. The New Testament more than once quotes God as saying, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. When it comes to this sin in particular, 1 Corinthians 6 says, these who practice this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hebrews 13, God will judge them. In Revelation, it is the sexually immoral who have their portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And they are outside the holy city with those who are unholy, the sorcerers and murderers and idolaters. The expectation of this sort of life is very different than the expectation of God's redeemed people. I think Paul is speaking again very similar to the writer to the Hebrews. So in verse 2, he says, remember the instructions that we gave you. 
In verse 6, he says again, we told you this beforehand. We solemnly warned you about this truth. And the idea is, if you've heard these instructions, if you've heard this warning that sexual immorality is sin, and yet you continue in it, then the expectation left is for the vengeance of God. Because how could God's chosen holy people ever be content with treating God's things as unholy? What Paul is teaching us is that to relate to the Lord as an avenger is to not know him as the redeemer. These are very heavy words. But sexual immorality has no place in the Christian life also because of God's call in verse 7. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Think with me, what is it that God has called us to? God would never call us out of sin and then call us into sin. That doesn't make any sense. No, God's call, once again, is to a life that is different. He's called us out of darkness into what? Light, out of disobedience, into obedience. Out of hatred, into out of being children of wrath. Here's the final hard to test question. Into children of God. We are a different kind of people. God makes sinners into a whole new creation. You can look at this sin of sexual immorality like a piece of of trash in the garbage dump of an impure life without Christ. God calls his children to leave this dumpster kind of life and live and take refuge in his kingdom and in his glory. And if you are living, dwelling in the kingdom and the glory of God, then you would never revert back to dwelling in the dumpster of sin. Can we say there are no dumpsters in the kingdom of heaven? No, these are weighty and strong terms. But these are the words that Paul is directing us to because this is a, indeed a very serious matter. God's people do not live in sexual immorality because it doesn't go along with the Christian life because of God's plan and God's vengeance and God's call. And last, I want to show you because of God's gift. And this is the most important one of all. The very last phrase in verse 8, God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Hopefully by now the contrast will be very clear. If immorality is not holiness, as we have seen, then how in the world could that immorality mix with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the definitive seal of of the grace of God in the life of a believer. How do we know that God's people will be holy? Because God has put his Holy Spirit in us. We don't simply have God's mercy saying your sins can be forgiven. We don't simply have the death and resurrection of Christ that that works out forgiveness for sin. God has gone even further and given his most wonderful blessing to his people. He has put the presence and character of himself in us. Israel thought that it was awesome that God would come to them and speak to them. In fact, so awesome, they didn't want to hear from God himself. They wanted Moses to stand in the gap. But eventually, God did even better. And the apostle John calls it glory that the Son of God would take on flesh and dwell among his people. 
So God came in human form as Jesus Christ and lived among his people and preached. But oh, what depths of mercy, what heights of grace, church, that, that God would go even further as you hear this promise from the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 14, the Father will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is none other than the Holy Spirit. Not just God coming to speak, not just God coming to live among us, but God himself through his Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit is constantly this gift of God to his children who indwells God's people so that there is nothing that we can say or do. There's no place that we can go where God is not right there in the midst of us. He is the very power of God in us to actually be holy. Now keep that in mind. You still cannot accomplish holiness on your own. It still requires God's power, God's spirit within you. But blessed be the Lord, he is the giver of the Holy Spirit. And if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. I have this little book in my office that describes the Christian life as essentially this, the life of God in the soul of man. Our life is wrapped up, not in our life anymore, not in our strength, not in our power, but the life of God in us, directing us, giving us the power to accomplish God's will. If that is true, if your Christian life is the life of God, the power of God, the very spirit of God within you, church, then how in the world can engaging in sexual immorality be consistent with the Christian life? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So Paul says, glorify God in your body. God not only bought you with his son, but he has sealed you with his spirit. So we understand in verse eight, how Paul could say, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. For someone to deny this instruction isn't just to say, you know, these are man's words, throw them out. That's just an old teaching. It's kind of archaic. It's traditional. That's, you know, things have changed. And to disregard this instruction is to disregard not man, but God. It's to disregard the very reality of God in the Christian. Friends, if this is the pattern of your life at the moment, let me urge you, repent. Return to the Lord and he will return to you. There is hope of forgiveness from sin, even this sin. Christ gave himself up on the cross to pay for all of our sins, even the sin of sexual immorality. And if you would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess your sin and trust in Christ, then God will give you the same gift that he's given to all of his people, and that is the Holy Spirit. And holiness will be a possibility in your life from now on. Aim for holiness. There is hope for restoration in the gospel. It can be said of all of you, such were some of you. You may have been like that in the past, but in Christ, you can be a new creation. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can change, you can be different, 
you can be holy. For the rest of us, church, let me urge you as the Apostle Paul does, aim to please God. You must abstain from sexual immorality. We have this little sign on the ledge by our kitchen window that a friend gave, well, really to my wife years ago. It says, do more of what makes you happy. And happy is crossed out and written underneath is the word holy. So do more of what makes you holy. That's really the distinction between the Christian life and the world, right? The world is pursuing what makes them happy. But we, brothers and sisters, should be pursuing what makes us holy. But let me take that one step further. There's not really, in the Christian life, a conflict between those two words. Because we who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us from this world, who has given his life for our lives, who has given us this wonderful plan of God to make us like his own son, to bring us all the way to glory, how is it not our happiness to also be holy? This is God's will for us. This is God's call on our lives. This is the very presence of God in us. His Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, of all the ways that we could be described in this world, let it be that sexual immorality is never named among us because it's not proper among God's saints. Let's pray together. Father, I'm burdened heavily with the good news of the promise of your Holy Spirit, that you would be content to dwell within your people. God, there's no way that we could have ever made it to you, but you over and over again in increasing fashion have come down to us. You have put your Holy Spirit in your people. God, we want to be holy. We want to be set apart for, for you. Lord, we recognize that there is this constant struggle with our flesh, the sin in our flesh that remains. Would you empower us, Lord? Give us self-control to, to know what is the way to, to aim for holiness. Would you give us the spirit of, of honoring the Holy Spirit within us so that we could be people who, who are described as being different, not for the sake of difference, but for the sake of our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Father, make us more holy.